0: Hi everyone, it's a real joy and honour to be able to share God's Word with you in this way today, and whether you're a member of our Pinelands Baptist Church, or whether you're listening to this sermon somewhere else in the world entirely, I pray that God, through His Holy Spirit, would come and speak deeply and personally to each one of us through His Word today. We continue with our sermon series through the book of 1 Peter, and today we come to the opening verses of chapter 4. Our theme for this series has been After Suffering Glory, which comes from the key verse in this book, chapter 5 and verse 10. And the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, will himself restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. In this letter, Peter has spoken about suffering grief in all kinds of trials. Suffering as an employee in a difficult work situation. Suffering as a spouse in a marriage that is less than ideal. Suffering for being a Christian. And now Peter describes a very different kind of suffering... It is the suffering of self-denial, the suffering that comes through not giving in to temptation. Let's have a look. First Peter chapter 4 and verses 1 to 6. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing and detestable idolatry. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you but they will have to give account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead. For this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they may be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Suffering due to self-denial, suffering as a result of not giving in to sin, is not something that is often addressed in our Christian churches, and yet it's a vital topic. Too many Christians have not realized that loving God and going God's way brings internal suffering as my will bumps up against God's will. And sadly, that often means that the behaviour of Christians is not that much different from the behaviour of the world. As one writer puts it, we divorce at the same rate, we have the same addictions, we seek the same forms of entertainment, we wear the same fashions. And not realising that following Jesus involves suffering can lead us to sins that are actually attempts to avoid suffering. Let me quote the same writer again. Sin is often thought of as being motivated by the temptation for pleasure, but perhaps the real power of sin lies in the avoidance of pain and suffering. For instance, isn't the temptation to lie often an attempt to save face rather than face the consequences of the truth? Isn't the temptation to cheat on an exam an unwillingness to suffer the loss of reputation or other consequences that failure might bring? Isn't sexual sin often the alternative to suffering by living with deep emotional and physical needs unmet? According to Peter, the pain and suffering that self-denial brings is a godly suffering that is better than yielding to sin. Let's have a look at what Peter has to say about this type of suffering. Peter begins this passage by giving a call to arms. Arm yourself. And then he gives us three reasons why we are to arm ourselves. He says, arm yourself so that you will not waste your life. Arm yourself so that you will be able to resist pressure. And arm yourself so that you will be able to stand on Judgment Day. Let's have a look at each of those in turn. Firstly, Peter calls us to arm ourselves. Verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. There's actually quite a lot here, and perhaps we should look at each of those phrases one at a time. Firstly, Peter calls us to prepare in advance. In verse 1, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves. Remember back in chapter 2, Peter said to us, Dear friends, I urge you as foreigners and exiles to abstain from sinful desires which wage war against your soul. This is military language. Peter reminds us that we are involved in a serious battle and that we need to be prepared. We mentioned in an earlier study that it's too late to start training soldiers the night before a battle. It's too late to start thinking about God's standards for sex and marriage when you're in the back seat of a car with your girlfriend. It's too late to start thinking about what the Bible has to say about alcohol when the tray is being passed around at the office party. We need to arm ourselves in advance. But it's not with a weapon or even with an action that we arm ourselves. We arm ourselves with an attitude. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, arm yourselves also with the same attitude. What is this attitude? Well, it is the same as the attitude of Jesus, who was prepared to obey God to the point of suffering and even death. Or to turn it around, he was willing to suffer and die rather than disobey his Father. Jesus' coming to earth as a man was in itself an act of loving obedience. In Hebrews chapter 10, the writer applies the words of the psalmist to Jesus, Here I am. It is written about me in the scroll. I have come to do your will, my God. The only incident from Jesus' childhood that is recorded for us in the Gospels is his teaching in the temple while Mary and Joseph are searching the city for him. And on that occasion he said to them, Didn't you know? I had to be about my father's business. Never at any point in his life did he seek to please himself. He says to the crowds in John chapter 6, I have come down from heaven not to do my will, but to do the will of him who sent me. Jesus was always obedient to his father. And in the moment of his deepest agony in the garden of Gethsemane, When he anticipated not just death, because many men and women have faced death with much more calmness than Jesus, but as he anticipated the weight of all human sin upon himself, the guilt, the shame, the God-forsakenness, the hell of that, he still maintained that same attitude of obedient submission to his Father. My Father, if it is possible, may this cup be taken from me yet not as I will, but as you will. Paul sums all of this up in Philippians chapter 2, where he writes, Your attitude should be the same as that of Christ Jesus, who being in very nature God, did not consider equality with God something to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the very nature of a servant, being made in human likeness. And being found in appearance as a man, he humbled himself and became obedient to death, even death on a cross. As one writer puts it, Jesus took his obedience up to death, to the point beyond which it could be taken no further. And Peter says we are to have that same attitude. I am prepared to suffer and die rather than be disobedient to God. I think that many of us say this and even believe this, but we tend to think of this in terms of dying for our faith. Let me tell a story that I think illustrates what Peter is really talking about here. The pastor and Bible scholar, Don Carson, uh, tells of a doctor whom he calls Charles, not his real name, who was an elder in a local church. Charles had been brought up in a Christian family with three older sisters, and they doted on him, and he turned out to be a really nice child. He did all the right sorts of things and made a profession of faith as a teenager. Eventually, he went to university to study medicine. He was the president of the Christian Union while he was at his university. He found a beautiful young lady to marry, He was interested in public health and interested in serving Christ, and so after he graduated, he went to North Africa and served as a doctor at a leper colony. And after a number of years, he came back home and settled into this particular church. And with his background in medicine and missionary work, it wasn't long before he was asked to become an elder at his church, where he served faithfully and was a very effective counsellor. Then, without any warning that others could see, he told his wife he was divorcing her and he was going to live with his secretary. The senior pastor and others in the church spent a lot of time trying to counsel him and his wife, but this man's mind was already made up. In fact, his attitude was, why are you telling me what to do? I'm not doing anything wrong. You don't have the right to tell me what to do. And in due course, he did divorce his wife and ultimately married this other woman and moved elsewhere in the country. Several months later, Don Carson was chatting with this man's pastor, whom he knew quite well. He knew about the situation, and so he asked the pastor, tell me, what do you think went wrong with Charles? What was the problem? And the pastor said, I don't think Charles was a Christian. And Don said, come on, give me a break. The man was a missionary in North Africa. He followed the Lord for many years. He led others to Christ. And you say you don't think he was a Christian? And the pastor replied, Don't misunderstand me. I'm not for a moment suggesting that Christians can't fall into adultery. All I'm saying is that I don't think he was a Christian because I cannot find any place in his life where he ever took a major decision simply because it was the right thing to do under the Lordship of Jesus. And Don said there must have been some sense of rightness and self-sacrifice in going out as a missionary. And this pastor replied, no, not even then. He grew up in a Christian home and everyone doted on him and told him that what he was doing was right, but he did what he wanted to do. He went to university and studied what he wanted to study. He was a natural leader and everyone thought he was wonderful, so he became the head of the CU because that's what he wanted to do. He went and studied public health because that's what he wanted to do. He married the right girl and everyone applauded him. He went to North Africa because that's what he wanted to do. At no point can I find a place where he took a decision against what he wanted to do for Jesus' sake. And folk, this is where the rubber hits the road. Are there places in our lives on a monthly or weekly or daily basis where we take decisions against what we naturally want to do for the sake of Jesus, even when it costs us? even when it hurts. Where we don't watch certain things for the sake of Christ. Where we don't give up on a difficult relationship for the sake of Christ. Where we do give away some of the stuff we want to keep for ourselves for the sake of Christ. This is the attitude that Peter calls us to. And then Peter further describes this attitude when he speaks about the results of this kind of attitude. He says... Arm yourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Now, a couple of things that Peter is not saying here. He's not suggesting that Jesus had any sin that he needed to be done with. He's already told us back in chapter 2 that Jesus committed no sin. Nor is Peter telling us that suffering somehow makes people better Christians Sometimes suffering does deepen our relationship with Christ, but sometimes it makes people worse. They become bitter and cynical and angry. No, what Peter is telling us here is that men and women who suffer unjustly because of their faith in Jesus thereby demonstrate that they have made a break with sin. Not that they don't struggle with sin anymore. We all will until the day we die, But in choosing obedience, even if it means suffering, they demonstrate that they have made a settled, decisive decision to break with sin. One pastor says, When you make choices that involve you in suffering, you're making a huge statement. It's not all about me and my comfort. I'll willingly do the hard thing for the sake of Christ. The German pastor, Dietrich Bonhoeffer, was someone who understood Peter's words in verse 1. Bonhoeffer was one of the German pastors who opposed Hitler's Nazi Germany. He was arrested and put in jail, and he was executed under the express orders of Heinrich Himmler just a few days before the concentration camp at Flossenburg was liberated by the Allies. Erwin Litzer wrote a book about Bonhoeffer. Called Hitler's Cross. And at one point in the book, he writes this If we ask why Bonhoeffer had the courage to be martyred, we can only answer that he died many times before he was hanged at the concentration camp in Flossenburg. He was passionately convinced that discipleship meant death, death to our own comforts, death to our own agendas and when necessary, physical death too. That's such a powerful quote. Bonhoeffer died many times before he was hanged, died to family, died to possessions, died to self. And so Peter says, we prepare in advance, have the same attitude as Christ, and let that be seen in being willing to suffer rather than disobey. But why are we to do this? What will happen when we do? Peter gives us three results. Firstly, he says, arm yourselves so that you don't waste your life. Verse 2. As a result, they do not live the rest of their earthly life for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God. That's quite a significant phrase. The rest of their earthly life. What are you going to do with the rest of your life? It's so short. It goes by so fast. Perhaps you've already lived quite a lot of it already, and maybe it hasn't all been well spent. Peter's question to us today is, what are you going to do with the rest of it? Peter gives us two alternatives here. The first alternative is to live the rest of our lives for evil human desires. Peter describes these in verse 3, For you have spent enough time in the past doing what pagans choose to do, living in debauchery, lust, drunkenness, orgies, carousing, and detestable idolatry. We don't have to go into all the details of what's involved here. Suffice to say that these verses describe a life that is lived for the moment. Life without thought of anyone but ourselves. Living for self-gratification and for whatever makes us feel good at the time. And Peter dismisses this behavior by saying, you've done enough of that. However long you may have been involved in that, whether it's been 50 years or 5 minutes, that's enough already. I think it's worth reminding ourselves of the final destination that those actions lead to. Paul writes to the Christians of Rome in Romans chapter 6 and asks, What benefit did you receive at that time from the things you are now ashamed of? Those things result in death. He writes to the Ephesians and says, Have nothing to do with the fruitless deeds of darkness. And he writes to the Galatians and says, Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Sometimes that destruction comes in this life, a drug addiction that leads you to literal death, an affair that ends a marriage, but there is also an eternal destruction that we will come back to in a moment. But Peter says there is a second alternative too. We can spend the rest of our lives for evil human desires, or we can spend the rest of our lives for the will of God. That phrase, the will of God, can sound very formal and legal and, quite frankly, boring. But think about this in terms of a human relationship. This past week I was reading an article on the most romantic thing someone has ever done for you. One young man wrote in with this story. The first year my girlfriend and I were dating, Valentine's Day was coming up. And I mentioned to her that I had never actually had a girlfriend on Valentine's Day before. On the day, she gave me 25 completely handmade and drawn Valentine's Day cards, one for each year I missed, each with memories of me that she is fond of. Now, that young lady clearly loved that young man. And out of that love, she found out about him. She found out what he liked and disliked. She did something special that took time and effort. And she did it just to see him smile. In Ephesians chapter 5, the Apostle Paul writes, For you were once darkness, but now you are light in the Lord. Live as children of light and find out What pleases the Lord. If you don't really know God, then doing His will will seem like drudgery. But if you know and love Him, you will want to find out what pleases Him, and you'll do that just to see Him smile. To be used for a purpose, to know that the things I do will last for billions of years in eternity to bring a smile to the face of God, surely those are things worth spending the rest of my life on. This past week I read a story by the Christian philosopher Francis Schaeffer. He said, Not far from where we live in Switzerland is a high ridge of rock with a valley on both sides. One time I was there when there was snow on the ground along that ridge, now, it just so happens that on that particular ridge, the water from the melting snow can flow down either side of the ridge. Water that flows down one side goes down into a valley, into a smaller river, and then down into the Rhine River. The Rhine then flows on through Germany, and the water ends up in the cold waters of the North Sea. Water that flows down the other side of the ridge goes into the Rhone Valley, This water flows into Lake Geneva and then goes down below that into the Rhone River, which flows through France and on into the warm waters of the Mediterranean. The same snow, just metres apart, has two very different destinations. What about the rest of our lives today? You know, there's a little catchphrase that's often used in the recovery movement. It says this, Today is the first day of the rest of your life. Maybe you're an older person and you feel that you've wasted a lot of your life. It's not too late. It's never too late. Today can be the first day of the rest of your life. You have a choice, either to live for evil human desires or to live for the will of God. And actually, you may be in a better position to that of some of the younger people listening to this because you know firsthand that many of the things that we chase after when we are younger are worthless. Maybe you are a younger person and your whole life stretches ahead of you. You've yet to make decisions about what career you're going to choose, who you're going to marry, how many children you're going to have. I want to urge you, above everything else, to live for the will of God. That's the challenge and the encouragement from this verse. We can't go back, but we can go forward today with quiet minds and strong hearts to love and serve the Lord. Don't waste your life. Secondly, Peter says, arm yourself with the attitude of Christ so that you don't give in to pressure. Verse 4. They think it strange that you do not plunge with them into the same flood of dissipation, and they heap abuse on you. Non Christians in the first century viewed Christians as killjoys who lived gloomy lives devoid of pleasure. Christians were considered to be antisocial because they wouldn't go to the theatre with its lewd plays or to the chariot races or the gladiatorial fights with their blood and gore. And still today, Christians live differently, and the world doesn't like it. They don't have any problem if people ruin their lives or their health or their families or their careers through sexual promiscuity or alcohol, but let someone turn to Christ and live a life of purity, and they consider that to be peculiar and contemptible. They don't just think it's strange, they think it's offensive. And as Peter says, they heap abuse on you. Probably because they sense that God has a claim on their lives too, and they're resisting that, and so they hate you. Here then is a different type of suffering. It's one thing enduring the suffering of resisting temptation when you're sat alone in front of your computer. It's quite another when you're at a party. And everyone is urging you to get drunk and laughing at you and belittling you when you resist their attempts. But arming ourselves with the same attitude of Christ enables us to withstand that and give a gentle answer in reply, as we saw back in chapter 3. Thirdly, Peter says, arm yourselves with the attitude of Christ so that you can stand on judgment day. Verses 5 and 6. But they will have to give an account to him who is ready to judge the living and the dead, for this is the reason the gospel was preached even to those who are now dead, so that they might be judged according to human standards in regard to the body, but live according to God in regard to the spirit. Verse 6 is another one of those difficult verses to interpret but it seems to be referring to Christians who have died. And Peter is saying, while Christians who have died may have been judged by human standards while they were alive, while they were mocked and ridiculed and thought of little account in the world's eyes, yet they now live in the spiritual realm, and the judgment of men and women is not the final word on them. It's God's judgment that counts. Paul reminds us in Second Corinthians chapter five, for we must all appear before the judgment seat of Christ, so that each of us may receive what is due us for the things done while in the body, whether good or bad. And when we arm ourselves with the same attitude that Christ had, we know that no matter how others may judge us now, One day we will be able to stand before God's glorious presence, faultless and with great joy. All of this sounds very hard, doesn't it? Enduring the suffering of temptation to the point of death for Jesus. But as we close, let's come full circle and go back to the opening words of verse 1. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body... The Lord Jesus is not asking us to do anything that he himself has not already done for us. When we think of Christ's suffering, we shouldn't just think of the beatings at his Jewish and Roman trials, the whipping he received from the Roman soldiers, and the crucifixion that he endured, as horrific as all of that was. The writer of the book of Hebrews says this in relation to Jesus' sufferings. Because he himself suffered when he was tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. Jesus experienced temptation to the point of suffering. Most of us don't even get to that point because we've given in to temptation long before we begin to feel that we are suffering. A little later in the same book, the writer says, In your struggle against sin, you've not yet resisted to the point of shedding your blood. But Jesus did, for you, for me. Jesus struggled with and overcame sin to the point of shedding his blood. Just think about the implications of this for a moment. Again, the writer of the book of Hebrews says in chapter 4 that in Jesus, we don't have a high priest who is unable to sympathise with our weaknesses, but we have one who has been tempted in every way, just as we are, yet was without sin. In every way. That particular problem that you battle with, Jesus was tempted in that way. If we just go back to the list of sins that Peter mentions in verse 3, Jesus was tempted with all of that. Jesus was tempted to lust. He was tempted to look in inappropriate ways when women were near him. Matthew tells us that he had a reputation for being the friend of prostitutes. I'm pretty sure that at least initially, those ladies would have tried to relate to Jesus in exactly the same way that they had related to other men. In John chapter 8, we read about a woman who is caught in adultery and dragged out of her bed and forced to stand in front of Jesus. Jesus was tempted sexually to the point that the strength of that temptation caused him pain. He suffered the pain of that temptation for you and for me. More than that, in the words of Second Corinthians chapter 5, on the cross, Jesus, who knew no lust, became a sexual sinner for me, took my sin and the guilt and the shame and the punishment for that sin, so that when I accept him, God attributes Jesus' perfect record in terms of lust to my account. And when I understand that, it frees me up to live the rest of my life for him. I don't aim to live a righteous life in order to impress him, because my righteous acts are like filthy rags in comparison to the perfect righteousness he offers me. And when I sin and fall, he doesn't disown me because he has paid the price for that already. And so I can offer the rest of my life back to him in love and gratitude for all that he has done for me. Again, it comes back to a loving relationship. Charles Thomas Studd was a graduate of Eton College He played cricket for Cambridge and for England. He was part of the original Ashes match back in 1882. He shocked the world by leaving a glittering cricket career, the safety and comfort of home, the wealth of his family, to become a missionary. He spent 15 years in China, 6 in India, 21 in Africa. He died in the Congo at the age of 70. And when asked how he could have given up fame and fortune for the squalor and obscurity of the mission field, he replied famously, If Jesus Christ be God and died for me, then no sacrifice can be too great for me to make for him. Therefore, since Christ suffered in his body, Let us arm ourselves also with the same attitude, because whoever suffers in the body is done with sin. Let us not live the rest of our earthly lives for evil human desires, but rather for the will of God who loves us and gave himself up for us. Amen.